Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to see Gary and Barbara back after their time away. I trust it's been restful. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I also see the Bernies back from Florida. Welcome back. It's good to see you guys as well. Uh, I also had a chance uh, recently to catch up with the Opals via Zoom, and they all uh, send their greetings to you uh, and want you to know that they're praying for us and they, uh, they regret not being able to get up here right now during the pandemic. Uh, so they've been trying to reach out to their partner churches via Zoom. I also want to just you know, acknowledge, hey, we've got little ones here. We don't have children's church. There's no children's program right now. We have some young families. It's really encouraging to see that. And, uh, you know, for the rest of us, you know, that might mean there might, there might be some wiggles, maybe little noises here and there, but uh, let the little ones come to me, says the Lord, right? So let's have grace for, for the young families here and those little ones among us. Uh, you are absolutely welcome. And so praise God for that. All right, today we are going to wrap up our series in Jonah. And before we get to chapter four, let me just give a brief recap of chapters one to three. Chapter one, of course, Jonah was uh, called by the Lord to bring a message of judgment against the people of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, uh, who were, by the way, enemies of God's people, Israel. Jonah's response was to run and hide, to run and hide. Get me as far away from Nineveh as possible. I'm going to Tarshish, right? I'm getting out of here. And, and God's response was gracious. It was a gracious pursuit of Jonah. And this might sound strange, but the way in which he graciously pursued Jonah was through the means of a, a deadly storm, he used this storm to wake Jonah up and to get him back on track. Jonah responds by, he stops running. And he trusts himself to the justice of God. And he tells those sailors, toss me overboard because it's, it's because of me that this deadly storm has come upon you. Toss me overboard and the seas will calm down. Chapter one ends with Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish that the Lord appointed to swallow him. And then we come to chapter two where we see that uh, while Jonah entrusted himself to the justice of God, it was, it was beneath the waves that he encountered the grace of God. And we took a deep dive look at what is the grace of God in chapter two that Jonah encounters. And, and we talked about this, the grace of God is being led in to God's favor when we have no business and no right to be there and God is not obligated to let us in there. And God's grace is for all. God's grace is for all who acknowledge the depths of their sin and the heights of God's mercy and grace and all who call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith will find salvation. At the end of chapter two, this great fish is commanded by the Lord to, to vomit Jonah up onto dry land, and in chapter three, we saw God use Jonah, a broken servant, to bring about one of the greatest revivals in human history. We looked at the recipe for revival in chapter three, which included genuine belief on the part of the Ninevites, genuine belief in the faithful message of God as proclaimed 
by a broken servant who is humbled and who is willing. The book of Jonah could have ended there, right? I mean, look at the last lines of chapter 3. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It could have ended there. Roll the credits. Everybody goes home. The reader's happy. Uh, Maybe one more verse could have been in there. Jonah went away rejoicing, right? But that's not what happens. We have a chapter four. We have a chapter four. And and let me just remind you that this is one example of uh, the, the fact that the book of Jonah is more about the prophet and what God is doing in his heart than it is about his message or the response of the Ninevites. So there's one more lesson for Jonah here in chapter four and one more lesson for us as well. And by the way, let me just say that chapter four is yet another example of uh, a reason that we can have confidence to know that Jonah is historical. Because no ancient myth or legend portrays the central figure as a fool. And here, you're gonna see in chapter four, Jonah's made to look like a fool. And no ancient myth or legend does that. And so here's yet, again, another example uh, for us to have confidence in the historicity of Jonah. So having said all that, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. It will be on the screen as well. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Is this, uh, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So the main idea for this morning that I want you to remember is this. God appoints hardship to remind us of his grace. God appoints hardship to remind us of his grace. We're going to cover this in three points. We're going to talk about first forgotten grace, God's school of grace, and remembering grace. So let's start off with point number one, forgotten grace. While Jonah encounters the grace of God in chapter two, we covered that a few weeks ago, uh, a little over a month has gone by, and that's about the time it would take to travel from Joppa to Nineveh. And it's clear that in that time, uh, Jonah's gospel perspective became myopic. And God is going to correct his vision. He's going to give him a, a panorama view of his grace, a panoramic view of his grace. So look at verse one. Jonah, it says, Jonah was displeased. Now, would you expect that after the ending of chapter three? Jonah was displeased, exceedingly angry. Jonah recalls God's own character and uses this against him in his complaint. He says, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is a common uh, uh, remembrance of God's character that we see time and again throughout the scriptures. And Jonah is bringing this up in his argument against God. And then in verse 3, Jonah asks God to take his life. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God responds with a question. Do you do well to be angry? I actually like how the NIV puts it here. It says, uh, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. He walks away. He leaves the city and he goes to a safe distance, kind of sets up camp, and he waits, probably hoping that God will change his mind. Remember, the message was 40 days, so maybe he's going to wait the 40 days just hoping that they'll be smited, just waiting. What is going on with Jonah? What is his problem? Here's his problem. Jonah's problem is his heart is divided. His heart is divided. There's a little battle going on inside of Jonah's heart. Remember last week I talked about how there's a, a little throne on top of each of our hearts and whoever sits on that throne is, uh, is kind of mastering over the, the will of, uh, of the person. Well, there's, there's a little game of king of the mountain going on in Jonah's heart for the right to sit on that throne. You see, Jonah had a professed God that he was paying lip service to, but he also had a functional God. A functional God. He had a different God that that was ruling over his heart than the one that he was paying lip service to. And Isaiah warned about this. In Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
So, so if, if Jonah's professed God is the true God, then who is Jonah's functional God? We don't know much about the person of Jonah. But what we do know is interesting, and I think sheds some light on this. We, we do know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah prophesied in favor of Jeroboam II, one of the kings of the, the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied in his favor that his borders would be expanded under his reign. And, and we see uh, also that uh, Nineveh is the capital city of his enemies. And it's likely that this is what's running through Jonah's mind, is that if God spares Nineveh, it's only a matter of time before they're strong enough again to mount an attack against his country. They've threatened them before, so this is not a new thing. And Jonah did not want to be complicit in the downfall of his nation. Fast forward, Assyria in 722 BC would attack and conquer the northern kingdom. It would fall. Jonah is a person who loves his people. He loves his nation. Jonah was a patriot. But he had a functional God. All of those things, while good, became a functional God. It, it was his nationalism. Jonah loved his people, good. Jonah was a patriot, good. But when, when Jonah became hell-bent on God nuking those dirty pagans, the good love for his people and his nation became his functional God. Because when it came down to the, the security of his nation and obeying God, which he did, by the way, but he didn't do it with a good attitude. There was conflict in his heart. His heart was divided. His patriotism had, his, had become a functional God for him. And you know, as long as the true God served the interests of his functional God, things were good. There's, there's peace in your heart. When, you're, when the true God serves your functional God, there's, there aren't any problems. But church... May we guard our hearts from using God to get something else that we want more than God. May we guard our hearts against this. God is not somebody to be used. He's not a pet to be put on a leash. My girls and I just finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia recently and time and again it says throughout the series, Aslan, the Christ figure in, in that book is referred to uh, as being not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God. He's not someone to negotiate or bargain with. You have nothing to bargain with. He made you. His sustaining power holds all your molecules together and puts breath in your lungs. The only way that you can come to God is with nothing knowing that Jesus Christ died for you to pay for your sin and to make you part of God's family. There's no bargaining there. There's no negotiating there. It's you come with nothing. God threatened Jonah's nationalism and we're told that he became angry enough to die. 
when a person gets to that place, when a person gets to that place, it means that there's a loss of ultimate meaning or purpose. It's as if they're saying, I have no meaning left in my life to live for. There's nothing, no purpose or meaning left for me to live for. I have no reason to live. And the irony here is that Jonah is saying this to God, who's the only one worth living for. He's the only one that gives us our ultimate meaning and purpose in life. He's saying to him that he has no meaning and purpose left to live for. Now, it's easy to beat up on Jonah. Come on, Jonah, why can't you get with the program? It's easy to do this and miss the, the fact that functional gods are a human problem and not just a Jonah problem. King David prayed this in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart that I may fear your name. In the last verse of that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, I love this. It puts this truth so beautifully. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So if this is a human problem and not just a Jonah problem, how do we know if we have a divided heart? Well, one question you can ask yourself is this. What is it that you hope for? That you strive for? That you, that you expend resources for? That maybe you even pray for? That if you don't get it, or if it's taken from you, you have nothing left to live for. And that can be a hard thing to wrestle with because it's not always immediately obvious. And our hearts are, are deceitful, Jeremiah says, and can hide these things from us. And so one, another thing that I would suggest is that uh, you ask that question of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Spirit to examine your heart and to reveal that to you. And King David's prayer in, in Psalm 139, I think, is right for all of us to pray toward this end. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This brings us to point number two, God's school of grace. So with Jonah's functional God now exposed, God will teach Jonah a lesson in his school of grace. God appoints a, a vine or a plant or a gourd, depending on the translation you're reading. Something grows. He appoints something to grow. We'll go with vine for now. Uh, and, and it provides shade for Jonah. So apparently that makeshift little shelter of his wasn't sufficient. Uh, and God provided this vine to grow up over him and give him shade and I love this. In verse 6, we, we read that it made Jonah exceedingly glad. And the funny thing is that this is the only time in the entire book of Jonah that he ever says he's glad about anything. And it just took a little vine over his head to give him some shade. Now he's glad. 
But the next day, God appoints a worm to attack the vine and kill it. And to add insult to injury, the sun comes up and God appoints a scorching east wind to bear down on Jonah. And in verse 8, Jonah repeats the same exact words from verse 3. It is better for me to die than to live. It is better for me to die than to live. And notice the strength of the language here. You know, this is more than, than God just allowing something to happen. Three times it says God appointed. He appointed that vine to grow. He appointed that worm to kill the vine. He appointed that scorching east wind. And we should be reminded of the words of Job as he reflected on his suffering. At the end of Job chapter one, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything was taken away from Job. His heart was exposed and it was found to be united. And remember why God did this to, to Job? He says to Satan, consider my servant Job. And, and basically Satan says, you know what? Yeah, of course. Of course he praises you. Look at all that stuff you've blessed him with. I'm willing to bet that if you take all that stuff away, there's a functional God there somewhere and he's just giving you lip service. Of course, God's the only one who knows the heart. He knew Job's heart. He says, okay, Satan. He removes those things and Job's heart is found to be pure. And this is one of the ways that God works in our lives. He takes comfort away or he brings discomfort for the purpose of revealing the character of our hearts. And this is what he does with Jonah. First in chapter one, he, he appoints it says he hurls this wind upon the sea and brings this deadly storm. It was an act of grace and love on God's part to wake him up, to get him back on track. And then the repentance of Nineveh then threatens his functional God in chapter three. Jonah's uh, heart is exposed here again in chapter four with the destruction of this, this vine or plant. And he becomes angry enough to die. Here's a, an illustration from the world of parenting, something I'm familiar with. A good parent does for their children what God does with Jonah. They make them exceedingly angry. But if you're a selfish parent and, and you live for the present only, and you don't want your kids to be angry or mad at you, then you let them do whatever they want. later in life they grow up to be undisciplined selfish maladjusted adults I have a little man at home right now who's pushing the boundaries he's testing this system out uh, some days in the morning he'll come out first thing in the morning he'll come out like dad I want candy or dad I want to watch TV 
It could be anything. It could even be, you know, he didn't get the color cereal bowl that he wanted. It could be anything. And if I say, you know, no, buddy, I, I can't give you candy. It's not good for you. Not this early in the morning. Maybe later in the day, ask me again. Or, you know, no, we're not going to watch TV. We don't watch TV all the time, especially not in the morning, not right now. His eyes get crazy. <laughs> like steam comes out of his, he has this look, you know, it's, you know it's going south when you see it in his eyes. I'm waiting for the day that he like turns green and like his muscles get really big. It's, it's bad. You know, and, and, and things come out of his mouth like, you are so mean. I am so angry. It's in our best moments as parents that our love for our kids is a shadow of God's love for us. We will endure our kids' anger because our love has a future orientation. Our love has a future orientation. God's love for us has a future orientation. And we remember Paul's words to the Romans, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things, not just some things, the things that we like, all things. He works them all together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Even things that make us angry. Let me give you another illustration for this, this idea. There's a story of these lumberjacks who are uh, commissioned to take down all the trees in this particular area of the forest and they get there, they start taking trees down, and they notice that there's a mother bird who's nesting in one of the trees. And uh, they had compassion for this bird. They didn't want the bird to, to uh, be in any danger or, or the baby birds at all. So what they do, they take the butt of their axes and they agitate the tree until the bird kind of says, I've had enough of this, I'm out of here, and goes and she makes her nest in another tree. And the lumberjacks go to that tree and they agitate that one as well until it moves to another tree. And this happens so on and so on until finally the bird says, I'm done with trees. I'm going to make my nest on a rock. I'm going to make my nest on a rock. Ask yourself this question this morning. Is it possible that you're experiencing hardship or suffering right now because the grace of God is shaking your tree. Is that possible? God comes to us in grace and says, if I'm not your ultimate meaning, your purpose, your security, then you have none. Because every tree in the forest of life is coming down. Build your nest on the rock. When God brings hardships, it's an act of love to reveal the idols of our divided hearts. He rattles our trees. He disciplines us like children. He destroys our vines until we find our ultimate rest, meaning, purpose, and the one that our hearts are made for. What are your vines? What are your functional gods?
Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your hardship. Use that as a tool to look at the character of your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to search you and to know you and to reveal the quality, the character of your heart. Our last point, remembering grace. Jonah's final lesson is is to be reminded of the wideness of God's grace. God does this by reminding Jonah of two truths. The first one is this. The first is that there's 120,000 people in that great city of Nineveh. People that Jonah didn't create. Not a single one of them. And let alone that, that vine that he's so upset about. Should God not care that much more for 120,000 people that he did create than Jonah cares for that vine? These persons bear the imago Dei, the image of God. This is something that's not said of anything else in God's creation, only of mankind. People have inherent value and dignity and worth because of the Imago Dei, the image of God that they are made in. It's not just the Israelites who are made in the image of God. It's not just Jonah who's made in the image of God. It's all people, including Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites. And this is why God says through his prophet Ezekiel, he says this in chapter 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This is the very ground of human worth and value and dignity. If we're all evolutionary accidents, we have no value. There's no grounding for our worth or value. And the the irony is that most people would agree inherently that people have value, but they have nothing to ground that in. They have no reason to believe that especially if they're a naturalist. It's conflicting with their worldview. So God reminds Jonah of the value of human life because of the Imago Dei. Second, this entire book reminds Israel, it reminds Jonah that while the people of, of God, Israel, were God's chosen people, they were chosen for a purpose. They were chosen for a purpose. They were chosen to bring the blessing of God to the nations and not just to hoard it for themselves. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis uh, 12 is that all peoples will be blessed through him. All peoples will be blessed through him. And this points forward to Jesus, the seed, the great seed of Abraham. We're told in Acts 4 there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Salvation for the nations, for everyone. God says through the prophet Isaiah that I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. If you're a 
hey, racist, Revelation 7 is really bad news for you. Uh, he writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We have this beautiful, diverse picture of heaven God's grace is not narrow. God's grace is not just about Jonah. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about you. It's not just about Fishkill Baptist Church. It's not just about America. God's grace is wide. It's for every tribe. It's for every tongue. It's for every nation. God's grace is wide. It's for every skin color. It's for every social class. It's for every political party. Jesus Christ, God's son, gave his life to forgive your sin and to make you part of the family of God forever by repentance and faith. God's grace is wide. The book of Jonah ends with a question. It's really a a rhetorical masterpiece. This whole book is fascinating. But the whole book ends with a question. It's just kind of hanging out there. And we're not told how Jonah responds. But I think that the very fact that this story was written down and it ends up being included in the Old Testament canon tells you something. Jonah must have said something to someone. He must have owned up to this and saw the value of of writing this down and having it being included in, in the canon to teach all of us this lesson. So I think that Jonah learned his lesson. While it's not clear at the end of of the book, because the, the questions just left out there hanging. This leads me to believe that Jonah learned his lesson in the school of grace. May we learn Jonah's lesson and may we see our hardship and our suffering in this life as God's means to uproot the functional gods in our divided hearts. That we may with united hearts join the missionary heart of God for all people, for all people for family members, for strangers, for friends, and for enemies, for your neighbors and distant tribes, for the glory of God and the good of all people. Let's pray.